This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, thank you for downloading this latest edition of the Times Redbox podcast with special guest host, me, Luke Jones. Matt Chorley is uh, still away on holidays. So you've got me. And we've got so much in store today. In a moment, we're going to ask, how do you join NATO? We're going to hear from Finland's Europe minister and a historian who has followed the ups and downs of NATO for absolutely decades. We're also going to pick the brain of the Conservative MP who runs the number 10 policy unit about this new asylum uh, seekers being sent to Rwanda policy. Um, first, though, we talked about it with today's columnists, James Marriott and Manveen Rana. Manveen, I'll start with you. These plans that we just heard the Prime Minister um, talking about there, and of course there's been no end of briefing in the papers this morning about them. What do you make of them and their workability? Um, I mean, a lot of the details aren't clear yet, but from what we are hearing, I'm, to be honest, I'm baffled. Um, we're being told that these these plans are supposed to take on the people smugglers. You know, nobody's taking on the migrants where where we love migrants. You know, we're a country who who welcomes them. We're, we're proud of our generosity. It's the people smugglers, but it's not the people smugglers who are going to end up in Rwanda. Um, I mean, I spent some time following Syrian migrants at the time, you know, Syrian refugees um, across Europe and the people who board those boats you know when you actually see one of those boats they're so unsteady you know there's nothing in the world that would make you want to to get on one unless you were really desperate the people who who come on them all think they're going to be accepted or they think they're going to you know the people who who are just sort of um who don't have any just cause tend to think they're going to be able to sneak in anyway i don't see how you know the threat of rwanda is going to stop them coming but i think it is going to mean that we treat the people who do arrive really badly it's also insanely expensive and I, you know i don't know what this does to our cop 26 commitments if we're flying every migrant who arrives here to rwanda mm. uh, and potentially back but um you know at a time where we've we're about to hit a massive cost of living crisis we're being told there isn't any government money for for tax relief it seems odd that we're willing to spend potentially up to a million pounds per migrant to send them to rwanda where you know, as some of the coverage has already pointed out, they would be perfectly within their rights to sue if they're not treated well. And, you know, it was only last year that the government here was warning the government of Rwanda that while they've made great progress, you know, they still don't have um, a free press. They still have problems with political and civil rights. So 
it seems, you know, I, I think we would struggle in a court to argue that we had no idea that Rwanda might treat people badly. And in fact, Andrew Mitchell, uh, the Conservative MP and former minister, pointing out that it might actually be cheaper to put um, migrants waiting for asylum claims to be processed up in the Ritz um, every single night because uh, that might actually work out cheaper. Um, James, the Prime Minister there, in his um, laying out of these plans, did say that our, our compassion is infinite, but our capacity is not. Um, do you have any kind of sympathy with that argument that we can do lots of people, but not everybody? Yeah, I mean, infinite compassion does to me seem a strange way to describe uh, sending people to Rwanda, which I just whichever way you look at it, that plan does seem a bit sinister. All those sort of plans to repel migrants have a kind of slightly supervillain out of them. There were those ideas about sort of wave machines to turn boats back um, that yeah. were floated. And Nothing you read about the camps in Rwanda give you any confidence that these are anything other than like really sort of horrible, um, you know, bleak places. And, the, you know, the point about uh, Rwanda not having a free press and, you know, I think the Internet is sort of quite strictly controlled there as well. Um, this kind of, des- you know, this despotic country sort of does make you think, well, if horrible things are happening there, is it, is it kind of convenient that, you know, it's going to be very hard to report on them and, you know, challenging challenging the policy is going to be very difficult it just seems i don't know it seems like a slightly kind of shame well it does seem like a sort of shameful thing for uh, a democracy to be involved in but it's a problem that does need sorting doesn't it manveen in terms of getting people out of the illegal system which is as you say you've seen no end of it in your reporting and into the actual the actual proper system not least as the prime minister was saying in his speech there because um if a sort of a legal system is allowed to flourish this could undermine um, public confidence and support for an asylum system at all. Yeah, but to be honest, you know, I think they're sort of focusing on the wrong part of the problem here. Um, from all of my experience of covering this story, you know, whether it was with Syrian um, Syrian refugees or, you know, more recently with the Afghan interpreters, yeah. they would be better off spending the money making their system more efficient. You know, the problem is there are an awful lot of people who are fleeing, you know, potential death who are being put on hold for months on end because our bureaucracy is too slow. You know, if the bureaucratic part was faster, a lot of those people who end up on boats wouldn't need to be. Um, You know, we we sort of said to Syrian refugees, why don't you stay where you are and we'll process you over a a period of of more than six months. Sometimes it took years, Mm. which is mad to tell people when they're, they're in fear of their lives that that's how long it'll take. Of course, they're going to take boats. If you want, if you want to sort of make the the system work, and you want you know want the public to have confidence in the system that works, and, and you know to, to understand the people coming in have a cause, then actually, I think we'd be better off spending that money making our bureaucracy a bit faster. Yeah, and James, in terms of that point about public confidence, it is clear that something needs to be done because. As again, the, the, the Prime Minister pointed out in his speech, um, 600 people arrived um, over the channel yesterday. The total is now just over 5,000. We could soon be at the point where thousands a day are making that incredibly difficult journey again. And voters might be looking at that and thinking, well, you know, should we be accepting any asylum seekers? It might take the leap too far. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, you know, the Conservative Party's thinking here, or, you know, Boris Johnson's thinking here is that politically it's probably a fairly safe move. I'm, you know, I think the Conservatives feel pretty confident that they've got the edge on Labour with... Uh, you know, sort of, you know, sort of strict controls on immigration and, you know, by, you know, these sort of, you know, um, these these plans probably, are, I don't know, you know, it's going to be hard for Labour to kind mm. of respond to, 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 to respond to them because the Conservatives will be so confident that, you know, public dissatisfaction with, um, 
immigration policy yeah. is so great that it's hard to know what Labour sort of what Labour replies to these things. And on the Partygate destruction point, both of you, just because um, the government sources in the papers this morning have suggested that actually these plans have been in the works for weeks. It's not like something has just been rushed out today just to you know turn uh, journalist attentions away from Partygate and the rest. Um, but do you even think that this is a distraction from Partygate, Manveen? Um, because I guess if you're the kind of person who is railing against the Prime Minister um, for being fined for, for breaking lockdown rules, you're probably going to be the person who probably doesn't enjoy this kind of news either. Um, yeah, I think that's probably true. But it, there, there is a very distinctly Australian flavour to all of this, you know, to, to the policy itself. You know, the Australians have done done this in the past about sort of keeping people off shore and keeping them off, off, um, off the mainland while asylum you know asylum claims are being processed so that's quite an australian fortress idea uh, but also the idea of what linton crosby is known to call the dead cat so it's not that you're you think you're going to appease the public by throwing something out there but you throw something so unpalatable so horrendous on the table that everybody gets caught up arguing about this and they stop you know, they forget the details and they stop mm. arguing about the thing before. Um, and then, you know, nobody quite knows where, where this will land in yeah. the end. But it's just stopped that the media and the big public conversation being around parties for now. And that's that's useful enough, I think. I think that's that's yeah. the, the calculation. James Marriott and Manveen Rana are columnists. So in terms of this policy of sending uh, some asylum seekers to Rwanda for processing, how might it work? I've been speaking to the Conservative MP, Andrew Griffith. He runs the Number 10 Policy Unit. And I started by asking him whether for the asylum seekers on this scheme sent to Rwanda, is it genuinely the case, as has been suggested, that it's a one-way ticket? Well, let's rewind just first of all for a second. Um, This is part of a number of measures which have been put in place today to fix a broken asylum system. The UK is incredibly generous. Uh, We've had over 185,000 people Uh, We've offered a place of safety to since 2015. That's before Ukraine, uh, which is, of course, unlimited. But we are operating in the system where there's lots of deficiencies. People are coming over, putting themselves at risk. Uh, We're not able to offer the right accommodation when they come here. As the prime minister said, our our desire to help is infinite, but our capacity to do so is not. So um, what today is about is to try and fix a broken system. Um, You are you are right. I'll answer your question. Mm. Um, It it is a relocation scheme. Um, So um, it's not just offshore processing. Um, it's actually outsourcing um, to Rwanda. And so for a number, a proportion of those uh, that come here illegally, um, they will be uh, taken to Rwanda where they'll be part of our new economic development partnership uh, where they can rebuild their lives uh, and enjoy what uh, Rwanda has to offer as one of the fastest growing economies in Africa. And how will they know if they are one of the people who would be taking part of that? If you are a single male asylum seeker arriving on the shores of the UK, should you assume that you will be going to Rwanda? Well, what you should actually do is not put yourself in the very damaging hands of the people trackers in the first place. There are safe and legal ways to come to the United Kingdom. Um, We do have a proud record of resettling genuine refugees. But um, if you are simply um, trying to improve your economic lot in life, and we can all understand the uh, desire to do that, um, but there are literally 
millions of people uh, around the world who would seek to do that. We've got to remember they are displacing our capacity to help often women and children mm. from war zones who are facing real risk of persecution. Can I just ask so, you, though, about how you might understand the distinction, though, between somebody seeking asylum and somebody, as you describe it, just trying to improve their economic situation? If the processing is done in Rwanda, so are you saying that there's a stage before that that happens in the UK to determine whether they are genuinely seeking asylum because they have reason to fear for their life and well-being or, or whether they're an economic migrant and, and then they are sent off to Rwanda. Yeah, there'll be um, everyone who's considered for relocation will be screened, interviewed, they'll have access to legal advice uh, in the UK um, and they'll be able to pursue their claim for asylum in Rwanda, which remember operates under exactly the UNHCR uh, regime that we do in terms of assessing that, that claim. They'll still have access uh, to legal advice uh, in Rwanda, and if if their claim is um, is is valid, then then they'll be given asylum uh, in Rwanda just as they would have in the UK. So, um, but, but, nobody, it's, but it's never going to be on the cards. Being... But it's never going to be the, on the cards that they would then, if their asylum claim was was held up, that they would be returned to the UK. No, they will be. They will be those 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 proportion um, after after they've been. Uh, screened for their suitability uh, to be relocated to Rwanda. Remember, uh, 70% of um, those that have been arriving at these shores recently um, have been young adult males uh, of working age in, in good health. Um, those that are considered for relocation um, will be able to pursue their claims in Rwanda under exactly the same UNHCR uh, regime uh, as they would in the United Kingdom. Uh, and if, if, it, if it's a place of safety that they seek, uh, then they would have found that place of safety in Rwanda. Um, what we really hope with this policy is it will break the miserable trade uh, of people smuggling um, the watery graves in the channel uh, and the capacity that's taken up in the very humane, very generous UK system um, mm. by those who are un perfectly understandably seeking a better life, but who are not... Yeah. Uh, seeking, uh, fleeing from persecution, the, the, the women and children that we're trying to help most. And the underlying assumption in this scheme is that if you're looking for safety and sanctuary, you're saying that there's no real difference between staying in the UK and uh, us taking you to Rwanda, if that's your primary concern that you that you want to be safe. Or, 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 in, or indeed, as as, is, as should be the case, um, seeking that sanctuary in the first yeah. safe country that you come yeah. to. Remember, but all of those all of those on small boats are embarking mm -hmm. Um, from the, the shores of, of France, a G, G7 nation. Yeah. Uh, they've often crossed many other European countries, all of whom are equally um, places of safety under the UNHCR regime. But, but so for those who we, do we're, find we're, themselves... We're saying, we're but, saying you, you don't need to, um, to take this course of action. It's not a wise yes. course of action. It, you're putting yourself at danger. Uh, and, and partly what we're trying to achieve today is to break that economic model of the people traffickers. But for those who do find themselves in the situation where they are in the UK, that they're about to be brought on a plane to Rwanda, um, you're saying it's just as safe for them in Rwanda if they're, if they're granted asylum there as it is in the UK. In 2015, though, we had the case of, of a British judge blocking the extradition of some Rwandan citizens who wanted to stand trial um, in a trial relating to the 1994 genocide. That was blocked by that judge because she said it was an authoritarian, repressive state that stifled opposition, uh, that uh, threatened and killed opponents. People were tortured in secret camps and no longer had a free press. So she didn't think in 2015 it was safe enough to send possible Rwandan citizen criminals back to Rwanda. Um, what has changed since 2015 that you've seen? 
Well, we've we've clearly had the elapse of seven years. I think Miranda, Miranda um, obviously has changed a lot in that period. It's a fast growing uh, democracy. Um, there will be an ongoing monitoring regime. But how, sorry, of, how of has course, it changed course, in those seven of, years? Of, sorry, how has it changed of, in those seven years? Of, of, well, I, I wasn't I wasn't party to the um, the, the judge's views in twenty fifteen. I'm afraid. Um, but as part of this, of course, there will be ongoing monitoring. Um, Rwanda is a is a successful African economy. We shouldn't jump to uh, to conclusions or or use uh, out of date. Uh, data or, or perceptions uh, about what Rwanda's like. I mean, the Home Secretary is there right now with a big coterie of journalists who will be able to have the opportunity uh, to look at the sort of arrangements on the ground. Um, and it will it, it will rightly be the case that the United Kingdom government continues uh, to monitor the fate of those who um, are relocated to Rwanda. And but, who will but, be doing that? None, on, none so, sorry, who will be doing that for the British side? Will there be British officials dispatched to Rwanda who will be keeping an eye on this, or um, will it be the embassy there doing this? Which British well, people sure, will be monitoring I'm, this? I'm, I'm sure it will be all all of those. It'll be um, you know British officials from the Foreign Office. Um, I'm sure the Home Office will have a continuing uh, involvement. Uh, and as I say, the the British press who are there right now uh, in Rwanda will be alive to. Um, the, the the fate and the life opportunities given to people who are relocated there. You, you say, um, but as I say, we, we, rather than descend into this, um, you know, d- tunnel, I think we should look at the the, the big picture. This is part of uh, an overall set of plans which is designed to end the misery that's taking place right now in the Channel. Right now, there are people in unsafe craft who are being ferried across illegally by people who are seeking to traffic them in Mm. the UK. That is a miserable existence. Uh, It's taken this government to grasp this nettle to try and put in place bold plans that will actually once and for all try and address that. And we shouldn't shouldn't overlook that daily misery uh, happening on our coasts. When do you think this will be up and running, specifically the the Rwandan part of this? Are we talking months? Are we talking years? Um, I think we're talking weeks or months, to be honest. Um, my understanding is the Home Secretary is signing the agreement with the, the government of Rwanda uh, today uh, in Kigali. Um, obviously, a lot of due diligence has gone into that to make sure, as you say, uh, that that offers the right reception, the right safe places, the right continued access uh, to legal advice. Uh, and so my own understanding is that this is something that will be happening in, in weeks or months. Elsewhere, um, do you expect more Partygate fines to be hitting Downing Street staff and the Prime Minister and the Chancellor in the coming days? Look, I'm, I'm not a commentator. Um, I, I don't want to get into speculation. It's right that the uh, Prime Minister's apologised. There have been changes in number 10. Uh, the inquiry must run its course. I look forward to seeing eventually mm. uh, Sue Gray's report uh, and then people will, as as they have, drawn their conclusions. But I think there are, there are the British people understand that there are really important things, not just what we've announced today about stemming something that's been a long-standing problem in terms of illegal migration, but rebuilding the economy, helping deal people with the real tough uh, challenges of cost of living, trying to fix our uh, hospitals so that we get the waiting lists back under control. In that context, uh, I think it's right that the Prime Minister and the Chancellor get on with the job that they've got to do. You mentioned the changes within Number 10. Of course, you're part of those changes as the as the new policy head. Um, what have you seen change in Downing Street for the better uh, to convince your own colleagues and Tory MPs who not too long ago saw Downing Street as a sort of somewhat dysfunctional madhouse uh, to actually turn that around? 
Look, I think the biggest thing that I'm there to do that that Prime Minister does every single day is focus on what we need to do to deliver for the British people, to deliver on the priorities, uh, to do what we said we would do in 2019 when I was first elected. Uh, So I don't think it's about individuals. I don't think it's about personalities. I think it's about the focus of Mm. a team that remembers it's all about what happens outside the building that matters. Uh, It's what happens on the, the, the streets of West Sussex, where I represent um, but, the people, people shake, but the Prime Minister did make a big thing of but the Prime Minister did make a big thing of shaking up the personnel and how Downing Street specifically works, putting in a permanent secretary and the rest. Are you confident that that is all up and running and the changes that the Prime Minister wanted to see in terms of tightening up how Downing Street actually does things is bearing fruit? Yeah, I see. I see a quiet discipline. I see people focused on the day job. Uh, and I see overall a government that remembers that what we're there to do is to do the best job that we can for the British people uh, in the time that we've got. So so those are the things I see. Um, I can't comment on what went on before. I wasn't there. Um, but I think there's a, 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 a purposeful atmosphere uh, in terms of trying to get on with the job. Andrew Griffith from the number 10 uh, policy unit, also Conservative MP. In a moment, we're going to talk about how to join NATO. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details this episode of politics without the boring bits is brought to you by Luton Rising owners of London Luton Airport the UK's most socially impactful airport find out more at lutonrising.org.uk I'm Luke Jones this is the Times Redbox podcast time for this How to join NATO. For decades, Sweden and Finland have been united in their loyalty to each other and the idea of military non-alignment. But the war in Ukraine has changed many things, of course. Finland yesterday took its first step towards NATO membership and Sweden is expected to follow suit as well. Russia is already not pleased. If the two countries joined NATO, it would double the length of the NATO-Russian border. So the deputy chair of the the Russian Security Council and one-time president Dmitry Medvedev has already said, as we heard in the news, that Russia will take measures in the Baltic if they join. 
We'll hear from Finland's Europe Minister in a moment on that threat, their hopes of NATO membership and more. First, over the years, how challenging has it been for NATO to actually expand? And has it proved worthwhile for some of the countries who've managed it? Mary-Lise Surratt is Professor of Post-Cold War History at John Hopkins University and is the author of Not One Inch. On paper, the key part of the North Atlantic Treaty, which is what is at the heart of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, is, of course, Article 5. As your listeners may know, that's the guarantee that any member state will regard an attack on another member state as an attack on itself. That's a very, very strong guarantee, and, and 30 countries now share it. And NATO has maintained that guarantee and its deterrent effect until the present day, from 1949 until now. The question is now, is it going to be put to the test as it has never been put to the test before? And what will happen? What will happen if Putin expands his war to what is called Article 5 territory, meaning NATO states? The alliance is also an alliance of values, meaning it's an alliance, at least in theory, of democracies and countries committed to defending democratic values. Now, obviously, there are questions about places like Turkey, for example, and their their, uh, commitment to democratic governance. Also nowadays, Hungary and Poland as well. But it is also supposed to be a democracy of values. And so it's facing a very serious test now to see if everyone can hang together as they promised they will. And just tell us about a moment where you think it has maybe not been tested to the extent that it is currently or is about to be now, but, but in the past where it really has been challenge, particularly what you mentioned there about the onus of of Article 5? Well, the interesting fact about the history of NATO is that, in essence, deterrence worked, right? There was no war during Mm. the Cold War between the Soviet Union and NATO. Now, I I hasten to add there were proxy wars, right? And so people living in places like Vietnam and Afghanistan and so forth suffered. So there were hot wars inside the Cold War, so it wasn't all bloodless, but there was no major European land war. And now we are seeing one which is which is bracing. There was the disintegration of the Balkans, but there is nothing on the scale of what we're, we're seeing now. Perhaps the only thing that comes close was the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia, along with other Warsaw Pact members, but that was over relatively quickly. So right now really is, in, in a sense, kind of an unprecedented moment, and it'll, it, it, is, it is bracing. The only time that Article 5 was actually invoked was after September 11th, But the president at the time, George W. Bush, initially decided on a more unilateral response to 9-11. So that moment did not develop into, shall we say, a huge moment in NATO's history. Mm. Uh, The the, the first NATO's first firefight was actually in the Balkans. But again, that's not a, a peer competitor. So what we are witnessing now really is unprecedented. And obviously, one of the issues at the moment is expansion of NATO, either for and into Ukraine or, or maybe into countries like Finland and, and Sweden, which we'll talk about in a moment. But I just wonder, in the past, you say it's now expanded to around 30 countries. How difficult or problematic or contentious has expansion been in the past? Well, let me put it this way. NATO has always had various controversies right from the get-go over burden sharing, over who the new members should be. Uh, over the proper role of places like West Germany with France. France even withdrew from the Integrated Military Command. So NATO is no stranger to controversy. 
that has been constant. That being said, NATO enlargement is very much in the limelight right now because Putin has been instrumentalizing portions of that history to justify brutalizing Ukraine. Mm. I don't think it does justify brutalizing Ukraine, so I'm not condoning this, I'm just summarizing it. And in particular, he seizes on the history of enlargement since the end of the Cold War. Now, you have to remember NATO enlargement um, has been going on for, you know, started during the Cold War. It was not a new phenomenon. But he's particularly angry about post-Cold War NATO enlargement and feels that Moscow was tricked. Again, I'm not approving this. I'm just summarizing his arguments. And the... And the argument of, of him being tricked, that comes down to, well, in terms of the title of your book as well, the, the idea that, that NATO had at one point promised not to expand um, at least an inch eastwards. Of course, that wasn't necessarily a promise. Right. So, yes, the title of my book is Not One Inch, and that relates to this, this controversy. It comes actually from the beginning of 1990, and it's important to understand the context. The Berlin Wall has just come down. And I actually wrote another book about that called The Collapse, The Accidental Opening of the Berlin Wall. And I mentioned that to stress that this was not intended. The way the wall opened was unplanned and it was a huge shock. Hmm. And so the question naturally was, my God, what happens now? If the Cold War order is crumbling, what's next? And in particular, what's next for Germany? Because it was clear that the Germans wanted to unify. The problem for the Germans was that back in 1945, Nazi Germany had surrendered unconditionally. And unconditionally means unconditionally. There were, for example, no no limits on that. So that was still in force. Uh, There had been some modifications agreed, but basically it was still in force. And there were still four victor powers, the United States, France, the Soviet Union, and of course, Britain. And so the Westerners were willing to let Germany unify, but Moscow wasn't. So the question was, what would it take to give Moscow to give up its legal rights over Germany? that still emanated from the unconditional surrender. And more importantly, Moscow still had 380,000 troops there. So what would it take to get Moscow to bring them home? As part of an early speculative discussion about that, the US Secretary of State, James Baker, did say to Mikhail Gorbachev, who would be the last Soviet leader, he did say, how about this as an idea? Now I'm paraphrasing, but the exact quotations are in my book, not one inch. He said, how about this? How about you let your half of Germany go and we say NATO will move not one inch eastward? And Gorbachev said, yes, that sounds about right. We should talk about that. The problem for Gorbachev is that James Baker then goes home to his boss and friend and tennis doubles partner, President George H.W. Bush. And President Bush says to him, Jim, you got that wrong. You've leaned too far forward over your skis. That makes Mm -hmm. no sense. If NATO just stays forever frozen on the Cold War line, the Cold War front line, that means it'll stay frozen in the middle of United Germany. That means Germany will be half in and half out of NATO. That makes no sense. Also, Gorbachev isn't asking for this. We shouldn't give this away if he's not asking for it, right? So he says, you know, that's not right. I'm president and I think we need to maintain NATO and its ability to enlarge. Again, I'm paraphrasing, but Mm. the details are in the book. And Baker, of course, says, you're right. I hadn't thought about that. And this is one of my new findings in the book. He hurriedly has to send around a, a message to everybody, to the allies. Uh, saying, sorry, sorry, what I said is causing confusion. We're not going to talk about that anymore. Sorry. Now, it takes Moscow a while to notice, and Gorbachev begins to realize he he can't get this formalized. 
And the kicker is that when it, they finally push comes to shove, they finally sign a treaty to get Moscow to give up its troops and its legal rights. He actually gives those up for financial inducements only. The treaty that, that Moscow signs explicitly allows NATO to enlarge. It allows NATO to move eastward across the Cold War line. And mm -hmm. Moscow not only signs that treaty, but ratifies it. But Putin doesn't want to talk about that. So Putin just ignores that part yeah. and talks about the speculative early conversation. And those countries who are not NATO members, who are seeing some of the worst of what Russia can do beyond its borders, had this kind of flirtation with NATO, have been promised certain things. Just explain the situation for us, maybe just pre-Ukraine war, just before the Ukraine war, that Ukraine was in, but also that Georgia was in, in terms of maybe being promised NATO membership at some point in the future, or at least being strung along somewhat? Yeah, I think more the latter than the former being strung along. This is a, a little bit convoluted, but it's important because it's one of the origins of today's crisis. So NATO enlargement begins. So as I said, President George H.W. Bush felt strongly that he needed to preserve both NATO and its ability to enlarge in the post-Cold War world. And he is successful with the help of German Chancellor Helmut Kohl and others. And this is also, by the way, when it's put to a vote in Germany, candidates representing this position win a plurality. So it has popular support as well. Basically, post-Cold War security looks like Cold War security. It's dominated by NATO, and there's a NATO, non-NATO line running through Europe. So countries quickly realize in, in former Warsaw Pact and Soviet areas that the name of the game is to try to be on the right side of the NATO line this time, if that's going to be the outcome. And so you have subsequent rounds of NATO enlargement, and as they're heading eastward, the question becomes, what about Georgia and Ukraine? And this comes to a head at NATO's 2008 summit in Bucharest, where on the one hand, you have the Europeans counseling caution, worrying about friction with Moscow, and you have the Americans under George W. Bush pushing very hard for membership for Georgia and for Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And so a compromise results that is the worst of all possible worlds. The uh, Bush administration concedes that Georgia and Ukraine won't really become members anytime soon, but the Europeans concede and say, all right, well, at least say it will happen. So in other words, we'll put in our communique, and this happens, that Georgia and Ukraine will become members of NATO. That's in the communique from the 2008 Bucharest summit. But we won't take any practical steps to actually make it happen. Anything that we usually do but when we're really going to add people, right? And so this is a terrible compromise because then Putin then hears this, Russian President Vladimir Putin, and he takes it at face value, or at least says he takes it at face value, and says, great, Georgia and Ukraine are going to be members. I disagree. I'm now going to take military action against Georgia to prevent this from happening. Yeah. But meanwhile, Georgia and Ukraine aren't actually getting the benefit of being members because that was not serious. Yeah. So it creates unreal expectations. It helps to inspire Putin. So I think this was a real mistake of, of the George W. Bush administration, both to, to you know, push for this kind of bad compromise. So what do you think then when you read reports in the newspapers at the moment that both Finland and Sweden are considering NATO membership and it's being sort of heartily aired in public rather than actually them getting on with it and doing so sharply? The context now is, is different. I think that the Russian aggression against Ukraine is a game changer. It has ended the post-Cold War era. So the context is now very different from the peace of the post-Cold War era. You know, now we are on a war footing. And so I think it is a sign of what a mistake Putin has made that he's now going to prompt 
probably Finland, possibly Sweden, to abandon decades of neutrality and become NATO members and turn basically, you know, the Baltic Sea into a NATO lake, which frankly will make it a lot easier for NATO mm. to defend the Baltics, which currently is a very dicey proposition. There was a war game conducted by the American think tank RAND back in 2016, and it estimated how long it would take the Russians to carry out a military takeover of the Baltics, and RAND measured that in hours. Now, obviously, we've seen in the recent conflict that the Russian military has performed much worse than expected, so presumably that would happen in the Baltics too, but still, there's a very real threat to the Baltics. And creating strategic depth by bringing in Finland and Sweden would be a huge uh, benefit to NATO and a huge disadvantage to Putin. And this would not be happening but for his tragic invasion of Ukraine. And just finally, are you one of those people who who thinks that actually that again would be a a provocation of Putin, allowing Finland and Sweden to, to join NATO and to provoke him, especially when we know what kind of headspace he is in at the moment, or do you think he's going to do what he's going to do? Countries in the West may as well try to protect themselves as much as they can, if even if that is a provocation of, of sorts. I think at this point, given the brutality of the invasion in Ukraine, given the horrific killings of civilians with hands tied behind their back in Bucha, killings of children, bombings of you know maternity wards, I think Putin is going to do what he's going to do. And I think, again, wartime is different than peacetime, and we are now in wartime. I have a colleague who teaches in Helsinki at the University of Helsinki, a colleague who teaches political science. And within a couple of days of the war starting in Ukraine, he emailed me and he said, this is, you know, a friend, he said, something extraordinary is happening. People I don't know, just average Finnish citizens are looking me up on the internet, looking up a professor of political science at University of Helsinki and emailing me to say, I see what is happening in Ukraine. Ukraine is not a member of NATO. Ukraine borders Russia. Finland is not a member of NATO. Finland borders Russia. Are we next? And he said, I have never gotten emails like this and my inbox is exploding. As sad as it is, it's really tragic Mm. that you know, we have moved beyond the thaw of the post-Cold War era, and we appear to be moving not only back into a Cold War context, but potentially even mm. to a hot war context. It's amazing how quickly we have spun up into a situation of real extreme danger. This is Times Radio. This is Luke Jones. Uh, let's go live to Finland now and hear from the Finnish Minister for European Affairs, Tuti Tuparainen. Good morning. Hello, hello from Helsinki. This is Tuki Tuprainen speaking. It's a great honour to, to be in the broadcast. And uh, good to have you with us. Um, first of all, let me just pick up with a point that we were just talking about with a, a NATO historian there. She was saying a, a friend of hers, a political scientist in Helsinki, is now getting no end of emails from, from um, average Finnish citizens worried that they see what is happening in Ukraine and they genuinely fear that Finland could be next. How concerned are you about the situation? Well, I'd say that we have every reason to be concerned. And when I speak to my my voters in my constituency, they're also very worried. We've now seen the true face of Russia. Russia and Putin is able to do unfathomable things, uh, targeting civilian people in Ukraine, attacking an innocent neighboring country, peaceful Ukraine. That was something that should not have happened. And now we have to respond to this. And Finland, since the Second World War, we have been preparing for this. So we are not paralyzed by fear, not at all. We are responding and we are living up to our obligation. 
And can I just say that when you are talking about Finland, we have been military non-aligned. Uh, so far, we are not members of NATO, but we are certainly not neutral. Mm. Finland is not a neutral country. We belong to the West. Since we joined the European Union in 1995, we consider ourselves to be part of the Western sphere. And that's clear. And now this consideration whether we should become also members of the military alliance, the NATO alliance, is a sort of finalization yes. of our Western oh. integration. But we are certainly not neutral. And that is something that yes. I would like to really clearly message to, to the listeners of the um, Times Radio as well. Although joining NATO would be a big historic step for Finland, and I and I wonder how how concerned you are about what that might provoke Russia into doing. We've already heard from the deputy chair of Russia's Security Council, Dmitry Medvedev, who said that they will um, take measures in the Baltic if Finland makes moves to join NATO. That is nothing new. Putin has said it several times, and also Foreign Minister Lavrov, that if Finland joins NATO, uh, there will be consequences. So we've heard that before. And we cannot go on on the path of appeasement. We cannot please Russia. Uh, that's certainly a method that's not going to work. That is being proved in, in Ukraine. So we have to do our own choices, and we have to be very careful in order not to limit our own room of manoeuvre. So we will consider all the options that we have, and we will make our choices independently. But, so, but, but, it, sounds like, but it sounds like the Finnish government is, I know you're saying that you're going to think about this over the next few weeks, whether to join NATO. It sounds like the Finnish government is pretty decided, if, if, judging by the picture you've painted there, that NATO membership is right for Finland. Well, it seems highly likely now. Uh, the public opinion is already pro-NATO membership. But Finland is a strong parliamentary democracy, and we have to... Um, you know, follow the process thoroughly and uh, we have to discuss the government's uh, white paper in, in the parliament. So the decision will be taken, uh, will be uh, taken following all the institutional procedures. But there is a phase that is, is particularly dangerous for Finland and that is the interim phase between, you know, leaving the membership application and finally becoming a member of the NATO. Mm. And that phase is something where we'll, we will need solidarity from our partners, including uh, United Kingdom and the European Union. Because, because especially during that phase, we could expect uh, countermeasures from Russia that could be really mean and really nasty. Because that well, that's what we were just talking about with the uh, with the historian, Mary Elise Swap, because she was saying, uh, especially the situation with Ukraine and Georgia's uh, possible NATO membership, she said that under George W. Bush, the worst of both worlds happened because Georgia and Ukraine were promised NATO membership. Uh, NATO then, then didn't actually do anything in terms of progressing uh, that application. Uh, but Putin was still infuriated. And obviously, we've seen what happened as a result of that. Do you see in NATO willing partners who will support you through what you describe as a, that difficult in-between phase where you've put the application in, but you're not yet actually members? Well, the NATO's open-door policy is crucial for Finland. And we have been repeatedly told that we are welcome and we take that seriously. And can I just say that Finland is not Ukraine. We highly respect the, the bold fight of Ukrainians, but Finland is not Ukraine. We are part of the European Union and we have invested heavily on our armed forces. We have just made the purchase of F-35 
uh, fighters and so on. So Finland would be a resource to the Western alliance and our membership would increase the security in the Baltic Sea region. Mm. That's what we think and we have been repeatedly told that Finland would seen uh, would be seen as a welcome yeah. uh, membership uh, application. And in the meantime, um, is it frustrating for you as the war in Ukraine continues, um, of course, very close uh, to you, Russia, you share a board with them. Um, are you concerned that some EU members are still dragging their feet, particularly on economic sanctions, further economic sanctions, and that could be prolonging the war somewhat? We have all the reason to speed up our efforts to stop Putin. Uh, Finland is ready for ever tougher sanctions, including energy sector. We have to use our economic leverage. The EU is an economic superpower, and together with the United Kingdom and the United States, we can impose sanctions that have real effect to Russia. And we have to keep determined, and we have to be calm and continue, because any other option would be much worse. What do you make of your German colleagues then, who don't seem as keen as you and other countries in really pushing on those economic sanctions, particularly on energy supplies? Well, I would I would um, say that the European Union is is utmost united in this issue, and also the Germans are serious when when it comes to sanctions. I've been talking to my my colleague Minister Anna Lurman, and I've been talking to Olaf Scholz together with our Prime Minister, and I know that they have all the willingness needed to punish Russia for its illegal action and its ruthless war in Ukraine. But of course. There are different realities in different countries. Finland is not that dependent on Russian energy, uh, definitely not of Russian gas. But when it comes to Germany, they, they have a high dependency on Russian gas. And you have to keep in mind that Germany is the fourth biggest economy in the world. So we have to be careful in order not to harm ourselves when, in act- when actually the intention is to cause pain to Russia. Tuti Tuprainen, Finnish Minister for European Affairs, thanks very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And I was, want to wish a uh, happy Easter to the listeners of Times Radio. Oh, thank thank you. you. Likewise. Um, there she goes. That's Tuti Tuprainen, who's the uh, Finnish Minister for European Affairs. Um, let's think uh, just briefly about the situation in uh, Sweden as well, because that is also another country which is considering NATO membership. We can speak to Tubion Schustrom, who is from the Swedish polling company uh, Novus. Um, afternoon, Tubion. Mm, afternoon. Thanks so much for your time. Um, morning, actually. It's not even afternoon. Yeah. Apologies. <laughs> Getting ahead of myself. Um, we were just hearing there from uh, the uh, European Affairs Minister for Finland that uh, public opinion in Finland has really shifted in favour of NATO membership. Are you seeing such strong trends in Sweden as well? Yeah, we see the similar trends. And I think the Swedes acted in the same way as the Finns. We didn't get scared. We, we got angry. That's what I see in all the polls we have done since the invasion of Ukraine. And the uh, opinion shifted quite rapidly. Uh, On the 25th of February, uh, it was 40% who were for uh, 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 joining of of the NATO. Uh, And then it's increased. And it's almost every second Swede wants to join NATO now. But, but if we join together with Finland, then it's 63% who want to join NATO. Mm. So, so we clearly see that 
our causes tied together with Finland. We, we don't want to see it as an isolated event. Would there be difficult political hurdles um, to overcome in Sweden, though, on this? Um, in terms of the situation in Finland, um, Ms. Dubrin in there was telling us that even though there is this um, great mass of public opinion pro-NATO membership, you know, they have got a parliament that they've got to um, convince everybody uh, mm. who's actually in position there to agree to this. Are there hurdles in that respect in Sweden, do you think? Yeah, there are similar challenges, but especially the Social Democrats are, are leading the parliament right now. They have officially said that they don't want to join NATO, uh, but at the same time, they have an internal decision that they should not join NATO. So they basically have to turn around their own uh, previous decision and they can't say yes to NATO before that. But they're also looking at the public opinion and especially when they see if Finland joins NATO, 60% of the social democrats in Sweden want Sweden to join NATO. And the time we are right now, people are, the politicians are listening to the, the voters quite keenly. Thanks very much for your time. I appreciate it. To be on from the Swedish polling company Novus on uh, how public opinion has shifted there in favour of NATO membership. And uh, just before him, uh, we heard from the uh, Finnish Minister of European Affairs on their um, own uh, hopes with that respect. Uh, and before that, uh, the fabulous Mary-Lise Surratt, who's the uh, Professor of Cold War History at John Hopkins University. Her brilliant book, Not One Inch, is out now um, because, as she laid out for us, quite a tricky path it has proven in the past for countries wanting to join NATO. And that's it from us. Thanks very much for listening. Do subscribe if you liked it. I'm on Twitter as well, at LukeJones03. And uh, if you really enjoy all this kind of business, why not tune in live? Uh, We're back on tomorrow, live from 10am. See you then. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.